Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. It's been a long while, but let's pick up where we left off last time. Having survived his second exile, Saigo returned to Kagoshima. During the years of forced idleness, he had read many books and formed his definitive view of the world, of good and evil, of uh, white and black, and apparently there was nothing in between. On the other hand, Saigo was no longer so naive about politics, though he was still determined to serve the emperor. And he was 36 years old. For the next five years, as if to make up for all the time he spent in exile, he would move constantly between Kyoto and Kagoshima, making plans with friends, enemies and seemingly neutral foreigners. He will fight and reconcile, break and build. So this time prepare yourself for a kaleidoscope of events and faces. On the 28th of March 1864, Saengo left Okinoe-Rabujima. And although the comrades who came to take him home had clear instructions to bring him directly to Kagoshima, Saengo insisted that he be taken to his family in Oshima first. There was no point in arguing, so two days later they sailed to the port of Tatsugo, where Saengo spent four happy days with his family, and only then did they set sail for Kagoshima. It was an extremely pleasant and long-awaited visit for Saengo, but his fate was that he would never return to Amami, nor would he see his island wife again. Finally, on the 4th of April, Saengo arrived in Kagoshima. The next day he visits Nariakira's grave, and just a week later he sails for Kyoto. On the 19th of April, Saengo arrives in the imperial capital and meets Hisamitsu, who, in turn, restores Saigo's stipend and appoints him commander of the Satsuma forces in Kyoto. And if you don't understand how and why Satsuma's troops ended up in Kyoto, let's go two years back, when Saigo and Hisamitsu were arguing about the Kyoto campaign. Two years ago, Saigo was wrong. The Kyoto campaign was not only a timely idea, but also an attractive one for all parties. And when Hisamitsu demanded that the shogunate share its power with the imperial court and the major daimyo, the shogunate happily agreed. That way, it would not have to bear the responsibility for signing in popular treaties with foreign powers alone. Since power is shared, decisions are shared, and so was blame. Such a system of shared power and daimyo participation in decision-making was called kobugatai, literally the union of the imperial court and the warriors, and was in essence Nariakira's dream, inherited by his brother Hisamitsu. But not all dreams are meant to come true. By 1864, the Kobugatai was ready to collapse like a house of cards. Daimyo were incapable of cooperating with each other, thinking only of their own provinces, and the imperial court had no clear position and brushed off problems as they arose. Instead of supporting and educating the court, the shogunate and the daimyo began to manipulate it, each to their own advantage, of course. In the midst of all this, it turned out that Hitotsubashi Keiki, who had become the guardian of the teenage shogun, was even smarter than Nariakira had hoped. Only he did not use his abilities as expected, and instead of supporting Hisamitsu, he supported himself. By 1864, Keiki and Hisamitsu were both allies and enemies, but increasingly the later, until the already shaky house finally collapsed. After just a few weeks in Kyoto, Saigo wrote that Keiki could not be trusted. He was dangerously ambitious. And if up till now Saigo had only expressed concerns about Keiki's loyalty to the Emperor, he would soon be openly wishing him dead. Thus, the future last shogun Hitotsubashi Keiki becomes in Saigo's eyes the main villain of our story. 
At the same time, as Nariakira and Hisamitsu's plans for joint governance of the shogunate, court and daimyo were failing, another problem was gaining momentum in Japan. That of a radical imperial loyalism. In times of crisis, everyone looks for their own salvation, and many samurai and townspeople found it in the figure of the emperor. They saw the salvation of the country in honoring the emperor and expelling foreigners, who desecrated the sacred Japanese land by their very presence. Under the slogan, Son no joy, honor the emperor, expel the barbarians, the movement gained popularity throughout the country. Its radical followers seemed to have no interest in facts and were prepared to impose their will by fire and sword, or rather by intimidation, murder and bloody clashes. And it was such loyalists who seized power in the southern province of Choshu, now Yamaguchi Prefecture. This would hardly have been a problem had the imperial loyalist movement not been encouraged by the court itself. Unfortunately, Emperor Komei and many high-ranking nobles still naively believed that foreigners could be simply expelled from Japan. Thus, by early 1863, all the major figures in the imperial court were supporters of Choshu, and on the 1st of April of that year, the imperial court ordered the expulsion of all foreigners from Japan. The loyalists were quick to comply. However, having experienced the power of the foreign fleet, the Choshu loyalists quickly realized that it would not be possible to expel foreigners by force, and that the blame, of course, lay with the shogunate. So, from the foreigners, Choshu instantly switched to a new enemy, Hisamitsu, and his half-measures and seeming interest in preserving the guilt-ridden shogunate. In July 1863, Satsuma samurai were banned from the palace grounds. But already in September, Satsuma united with Aizu clan and expelled from the palace the representatives of Choshu. Soon, the Choshu delegation was even refused entry to Kyoto. In an attempt to somehow improve the situation, the imperial court assembled a new council of daimyo and representative of the shogunate, but Keiki and Hisamitsu fought like cat and dog, and on the 13th of April of 1864, the council also broke up. Six days later, Saigo arrived in Kyoto to deal with this two-year-old mess. In the meantime, both capitals were talking about the punitive expedition to Choshu. Saigo had mixed feelings about it. As a Satsuma samurai, he was happy to punish the enemy, but on the other hand, he suspected that the conflict between Satsuma and Shoshu was orchestrated by the shogunate and the Aizu clan that supported it. As a result, Saigo couldn't answer the main question. Was Shoshu good or evil? So, he volunteered to find out. Saigo's plan was to go to Shoshu and demand a confession of guilt for the clan's actions in 1862. He was well aware that he might be killed, but he was comfortable with this scenario. If he was killed, Choshu was clearly on the side of evil. If they listened and apologized, good. Saigo asked the clan for permission to carry out his plan, but he was told to wait, and Saigo waited. As you can imagine, Choshu had a very different view of the described events. In their version of the story, Satsuma and Aizu have taken over the imperial palace by force, intimidating the aristocrats and issuing false edicts in the name of the emperor. The only way to save the emperor is to attack the palace and regain his freedom. When Saigo learned that Shoshu's army was preparing to attack Kyoto, he sent Satsuma troops to guard the imperial palace. And he didn't have to wait long. On the morning of the 20th of August, Choshu troops began to advance towards the palace from the outskirts of Kyoto. Saigo and his unit met them on the west side of the palace. After the initial exchange of cannon fire, he called in reinforcements and forced the Choshu troops to retreat. The battle lasted only a few hours, but it caused great damage to Kyoto. The wooden city quickly caught fire and soon had about a thousand houses fewer. Thus, not only did Shoshu's troops suffer a crushing defeat, 
but they also angered the aristocrats, whose residences were located around the palace and therefore burned first. This small but pivotal event would go down in Japanese history as Kinmon no Hen, the incident at the Forbidden Gate, and would remove all of Saigo's doubts about Choshu. Now he was absolutely certain that they were on the side of evil. The day after the battle, he would write to Okubo about how Choshu's troops had committed treason by aiming their cannons at the imperial palace. To his friends on Amami, with whom he was always more open in his letters, he would write about his injury, Saigo was wounded by a bullet in the leg. As you know, I like a good fight, but now that I have experienced real combat, I know how truly terrible it is, and I have no desire to do it again. Once the initial shock passed, the imperial court demanded that Choshu be punished, and on the 25th of August, the shogunate ordered 21 provinces to prepare troops. Much to Saigo's displeasure, the preparations drag on and on, so he starts looking for someone to speed things up. By lucky chance, Katsu Kaishu, Bakufu's naval advisor, happens to be in Osaka at that very moment. Either on his own or with the advice of his friends, Saigo had arranged a meeting with Katsu, hoping to persuade him to hasten the Bakufu's punitive expedition. The meeting, however, did not go according to plan and would leave a deep impression on both participants. On the 11th of October, Saigo would first meet Katsu, who was also not of high birth and had only risen to his position through his abilities. But what shocked Saigo most about Katsu was his critical view of the shogunate. While most samurai, including Saigo, disliked the Bakufu, but considered it an integral part of any future political order, Katsu boldly stated that the system had completely outlived its usefulness and the end of the shogunate, which has lost its power and respect, was only a matter of time. Shortly after this conversation with Katsu, Saigo writes to Okubo, I was surprised to find that Katsu is a man to reckon with. I had expected to intimidate him, but instead I wound up deferring to him with respect. Katsu's idea would stay with Saigo for a long time. Instead of the failed Kobugatai, he would now dream of a cooperative government, Kyowa Seiji, where decisions would be made by the Daimyo Council and the Imperial Court. This would cause Saigo to reconsider his position on Choshu as well. The clan certainly needed to be punished, but not weakened, for Japan would still need the strength of Choshu. And so, when Saigo meets Tokugawa Yoshikatsu, the head of the expedition against Choshu on the 23rd of November, they will change the original plan of action to a more lenient one, and each will proceed to do his part. On the 1st of December, Saigo would meet with Kikawa Kenmotsu, the daimyo of the neighboring and related to Choshu Iwakuni clan, to explain the demands of his command. First, Choshu was to send the heads of the three men responsible for the decision to attack the imperial palace. Second, to execute the four officers who had led the attack. Third, to hand over to the authorities the five nobles who had fled to Choshu the previous year. To demonstrate his intention to punish only the responsible authorities rather than destroy the clan completely, Saigo brought with him and released 10 soldiers from Choshu who had been captured during the battle. And his plan worked perfectly. Kikawa was able to convince Choshu to accept the terms and avoid a military conflict. On the 9th of December, the clan sent the heads to Hiroshima and executed the officers. But just as both sides started to rejoice, things, as they always do in such situations, began to go wrong. Not everyone in Choshu was happy with the clan's decision, and the province gradually descended into civil war. In the midst of it, radicals opposed to peace kidnap and hide the aristocrats who were promised to be handed over. Saigo realizes that he needs a miracle to save his plan, and once again, like a true superman, volunteers to be that miracle. 
After persuading his superiors to let him try to fix the situation, he traveled from Hiroshima to the city of Kokura, the very north of Kyushu Island, to meet his opponents in person. There, he meets an ardent supporter of Choshu, a samurai from Tosa province, Nakaoka Shintaro, who agrees to be his negotiator. Finally, on the 8th of January 1865, Saigo meets with Choshu loyalists in Shimonoseki. After a heated discussion, they reach a compromise. The nobleman will be transported to a neutral area, the province of Fukuoka, where they will be guarded by representatives of the five clans. This was not an ideal solution for the Bakufu, but Saigo and Yoshikatsu were able to convince the other commanders to stop the attack on Choshu. On the 24th of January, Yoshikatsu ordered all troops to retreat. Having successfully resolved the Choshu issue, Saigo traveled to Kagoshima, where he was warmly welcomed and rewarded by Hisamitsu. And just two weeks later, he was to be married again, this time to Iwayama Ito. This marriage, just like Saigo's first, was an enraged one. Marrying into the Iwayama family raised Saigo's status, but Ito also brought him a son and two daughters. All in all, 1865 was a very busy year for Saigo. In March, he traveled to Dazaifu to communicate with the arrested nobleman and their guards, then went to Kyoto, where he received bad news about the preparation of a second punitive expedition to Choshu, and returned to Kagoshima at the end of April with another hero of his time, a student of Katsukaishu and friend of Nakaoka Shintaro, the one and only Sakamoto Ryoma. Ryoma and Nakaoka had their own big dream, to unite Satsuma and Choshu. So, in May and June of 1865, while Saigo was getting another promotion, these two rushed between the two clans, trying to convince sworn enemies to become allies. Unexpectedly, they almost succeeded. It was all set for Saigo's meeting with Kido Takayoshi of Choshu, when Saigo was urgently summoned to Kyoto, and of course he dropped everything and left, without even leaving a letter of explanation. Kido Takayoshi wasn't a mind-reader, so he didn't appreciate Saigo's stunt. Luckily, he had Ryoma and Nakaoka working for him, and they wouldn't give up on the idea of an alliance after just first sleep-up. On the 15th of August, they followed Saigo to Kyoto and assured him that Choshu was still ready for an alliance. Now it was up to Satsuma to prove that their intentions for it were real and not just empty words. Soon they had an idea of how to best do this. Choshu desperately needed weapons. But, as declared enemies of the shogunate and the court, they were forbidden to buy them. This ban could be bypassed by buying directly from foreign merchants, but Choshu didn't have enough contacts with them. While Satsuma did. So, in late summer, Saigo helped two samurai from Choshu to stay at the Satsuma residence in Nagasaki and secretly buy 7,000 rifles and even a whole warship. But there was no end to running from one end of the country to the other. On the 4th of November, a squadron of nine foreign ships arrived at the port of Hyogo, now Kobe, and demanded that the port be opened. Saigo and Ryoma, who were back in Kyoto at the time, saw the ships for themselves and immediately sailed to Kagoshima to persuade Hisamitsu to send troops to Kyoto. Hisamitsu, however, decided not to go himself, but to send troops accompanied by Saigo and Komatsu Tewaki, a high-ranking samurai in the service of Satsuma. Thus, on the 12th of December, Saigo returned to Kyoto once again. Finally, he was in no hurry, so he sent a Satsuma samurai to invite Choshu for further discussion of the alliance. The year changed, and on the 18th of February 1866, Kido Takayoshi arrived in Osaka from Choshu. Four days later, he meets Saigo in the south of Kyoto and from there travels to the Satsuma residence in Kyoto. 
And while the conversation finally turns to common topics and interests, neither party seems to be in a hurry to make the first move. Kido, in the meantime, begins to lose patience and is about to leave when Ryoma arrives in Kyoto on the 7th of March to find the whole stubbornly silent nonsense. The very next day, Ryoma gets Kido and Saigo to stop thinking about their pride and sit down to discuss the details of an alliance. The fact that the shogunate still couldn't forget the events over two years ago and on the very same day demanded some more punishments for Choshu probably contributed to the discussion. Thus, after almost a year of preparations, Satsuma and Choshu would form an alliance. It was far from ideal and left a lot of room for interpretation, and at first it didn't even do much to increase trust between the clans, but it was a signed on paper alliance of two clans working towards common goal. On the 18th of April, Saigo would sail from Osaka to Kagoshima. It will be his first extended visit home after returning from exile. First, Saigo will visit the hot springs to improve his health. The springs unfortunately won't do much for his ailments, but duty is duty, and soon Saigo is back in action. In June, he takes an active part in preparing Satsuma for the crisis into which Japanese politics was sliding more and more. In July, he meets with the British diplomat Harry Parks. Parks' entire visit to Satsuma was a huge slap in the face to the shogunate, which was now openly disregarded. On behalf of Britain, Parks sailed to Satsuma to once again hint that he would not mind helping to overthrow the Bakufu. He did not say this out loud, of course, but merely expressed his government's official position of neutrality. This puzzled Saigo at first, but then he decided to share his plans openly. And Saigo's plan was as follows. The imperial court would take control of international relations and transfer management to a council of five or six major daimyo, who would receive revenues from the international trade on behalf of the court and revise the terms of trade agreements. Keiki would be enabled to endure such humiliation and would resign, leaving the shogunate completely powerless. And voila! Parks generally liked the plan. He did, however, bring some reality to Saigo's dreams. Japan needed global political reform and a unified ruler. And until that happened, he said, no one would take Japan seriously in international relations. Saigo left the meeting even more convinced that it was time to say goodbye to the shogunate. The shogunate had at the same time, as if looking for reasons to further damage his reputation, organized another military campaign against Choshu, which failed miserably before it had even begun. The military commander in charge of the Hiroshima front was deeply disgusted with the position of his leadership and quickly negotiated peace from his side. And Choshu, given the opportunity to concentrate on the rest of its attackers, soon drove them from its territories. So, instead of punishing Choshu, the shogunate punished its own allies, whose territories were now turned into battlefields. The next blow to the Bakufu was the death of shogun Iomochi. Iomochi was only 20 years old and had no heirs yet. The Bakufu could not keep his death a secret for long, and the main contender for the title of new shogun the already familiar to you, Hitotsubashi Keiki, flatly refused to take the position. In the end, he agreed not to become shogun, but rather the head of the Tokugawa house. And he did so only after everyone learned that he was doing so not of his own volition, but as a great favor to the Bakufu. The only civil lining was that the Bakufu now had a good reason to end the failing campaign against Chushu. The death of Shogun required a period of mourning, and under this pretext the Shogunate hurried to make peace. But that was pretty much the end of the good news for the Shogunate. 
So I go on the other hand, couldn't help but be pleased. But for the time being, he watched the self-destruction of the shogunate from Satsuma, where the westernization of the military and industry was in full swing. In October, he received another promotion to the post of Ometsuke, which he declined for health reasons. At almost the same time, however, he agreed to become a member of the Council of Elders. Saigo thus becomes a member of the elite of Satsuma society. In December of 1866, Saigo arrives back in the imperial capital, where Keiki already feels quite at home. The situation there is very complicated, but I won't go into the details to avoid confusing you with even more faces and events. The main thing for us is that Keiki allowed himself to be persuaded and on the 10th of January 1867, the emperor proclaimed him the 15th Tokugawa shogun. For Saigo, Okubo and others, this was a very bad event. Firstly, because the system of government that Saigo had described to Harry Parks had failed before it was even formed. Secondly, because Keiki is unpredictable and always one step ahead. And thirdly, because as usual, no one have thought of a plan B. Three days after Keiki was proclaimed shogun, a depressed Saigo met with another British diplomat, Ernest Sato. I gave the impression of some hesitancy so as to sound out Sato's true intentions. Saigo would write after the meeting, showing us that he was at least a decent diplomat and not the planned straightforward redneck we are so often led to believe. As for Sato, he will write the following about their meeting. After exchanging the usual compliments, I began to feel rather at loss. The man looked so solid and would not make conversation, but he had an eye that sparkled like a big black diamond and his smile when he spoke was so friendly. The subject of conversation was the same as last time. The formation of a new government to replace the shogunate and England's desire to help in any way possible. But I wouldn't be telling you all this now if Saigo hadn't returned home that day with some new ideas. Apparently, before his meeting with Sato, he had never thought about when the shogunate should give way to the imperial court and the daimyo. Now that things have gone wrong, we'll wait two or three years to be on the safe side, Saigo thought. But Sato and other Englishmen had other ideas. At the end of 1867, the port of Hyogo was to be open to foreign trade. If the port opened under the shogunate, Britain would lose badly, while France, which openly supported the Bakufu, would gain. So Saigo realized that his potential foreign allies had their own much tighter deadlines and began to think about what to do next. Soon the political situation changed again. On the 30th of January, the young and active Emperor Komei, who strongly disliked foreigners, suddenly died. His death deprived Keiki of his most influential supporter. The 15-year-old Mutsuhito, better known as Emperor Meiji, was named the new emperor. He was yet to make any decisions, but his regent, Nijo Nariyuki, was not at all opposed to a change in the order of government. Before the situation changed again, Saigo rushed into action. Less than a month after the announcement of the new emperor, he was already in Kagoshima. There, however, the illnesses he had acquired during his exile made themselves felt again, so Saigo spent the first few days at the hot springs, and only after recovering a little he began to persuade the clan to send Hisamitsu to Kyoto. To his surprise, it didn't take long to convince them. Hisamitsu himself approved of the plan. Therefore, on the 18th of March, enthusiastic Saigo went to Tosa province to gain the support of the local daimyo. The Tosa daimyo was all for it too and promised to leave for Kyoto the following month. The only disappointment of the trip was the daimyo of Wajima province, who refused to give any definitive answer. Soon, Saigo returned back to Kagoshima and began preparing for Hisamitsu's trip to Kyoto, 
namely assembling and training a mini-army of about 700 men to accompany him. This neither nor size was chosen for a reason. It was large enough to show Satsuma's resolve, yet still too small to provoke a military conflict. On the 15th of May, Saigo, Hisamitsu and even the official daimyo of Satsuma, Tadayoshi, whom we have almost forgotten, arrived to Kyoto with their mini-army. Over the next two weeks, other daimyos, including two that Saigo had personally summoned, would also arrive to the capital. Another month of 1867 would pass in constant daimyo meetings, and Saigo had prepared for Hisamitsu a list of important issues. It wasn't long, just two items. First, the shogunate should forgive the daimyo of Choshu. And second, the management of the port of Hyogo should be transferred to the imperial court. Thus, Saigo Nukubo thought they would fulfill their part of the agreement with Choshu, as well as publicly humiliate the shogunate and put it at a severe disadvantage before foreign powers. According to the agreement made with the shogunate, the port was to be opened very soon, but the imperial court did not promise anything to anyone, and most importantly was not delighted with the presence of foreigners in such close proximity to the capital. By opening the port, Keiki would have violated the will of the court. By not opening it, he would have violated the treaty and angered the foreign nations that had been waiting for this moment for five years. What Saigo and Akubo hadn't thought about was that the discussions might not even start at all, turning into a swifting debate on which side to break the boiled egg. Samitsu insisted that the subject of Choshu should be brought first, while Keiki insisted that the Choshu issue had long since been closed and that the focus should be on the port. The argument went on and on until the palace aristocrats were completely fed up. By the evening of the 26th of June, Keiki had finally exhausted his opponents and Regent Nijo agreed to open the port of Hyogo. Thus, the idea of joint rule by daimyo, court and shogunate was once again smashed against a rock named Keiki, and Saigo and Okubo realized that their number one enemy would not leave the political scene peacefully. But since Satsuma was not yet ready for the war with the shogunate, Saigo would spend the second half of 1867 building military alliances. The place to start was, of course, Choshu, but Keiki's victory meant that the issue of pardoning Choshu was off the table, and Saigo had absolutely nothing to show to the Choshu samurai. Instead, he decided to invite them to an audience with Hisamitsu. For a low-ranking samurai, this was a very unexpected offer, but Hisamitsu personally confirmed that Satsuma was faithful to the terms of the alliance, and this gave Choshu great confidence. In the evening of the same day, Choshu samurai were invited to another meeting, where they, along with Saigo, Okubo, and several other important Satsuma representatives, discussed the actual and detailed plans for the alliance. A couple of days before these receptions, Ryoma arrived to Kyoto from Tosa. He brought with him a draft of a union between Satsuma and Tosa, which beautifully described the restoration of imperial power, the abolition of a shogunate, the establishment of a two-chamber legislature, and many other wonderful things. On the 23rd of July, Ryoma showed all this beauty to Saigo, and Saigo agreed to the alliance based on the draft. Another week later, Satsuma officially confirmed his desire to participate in the alliance based on Ryoma's design, and the draft sailed to Tosa for approval. Saigo was overjoyed to have another alliance and wrote happily to his associates in Choshu about it. Unfortunately, he wrote in the same letter he would have to postpone his trip to Choshu because of this. Saigo intended to wait for a reply from Tosa in Kyoto. Soon, he received a letter informing him that the Tosa daimyo approved of the alliance. 
But then Tosa was briefly caught up in an international scandal involving the murder of some more Britons, and when the Tosa representative returned to Kyoto in person, he would have no army with him, and not even a document resembling the plan that has been discussed. In the meantime, tired of waiting and beginning to doubt the allies yet again, Shoshu's representative went to Kyoto to talk to Saigo. In September, they met and Saigo shared with them his latest secret plan, known only to Hisamitsu and a few other trusted men. The plan is for Satsuma to use its troops in Kyoto, Osaka and Edo to infiltrate the palace and installed allied noblemen there, and to cut off the Tokugawa forces and their allies from Kyoto. Ironically, the plan Saigo announced was not much different from what Shoshu had undertaken three years earlier. He said that back then, Shoshu had attacked the palace, and Satsuma had defended it with the allies of the shogunate. Saigo's companions, also former participants in those events, sincerely reminded him of the danger of fires. Then the Tosa representative will return to Kyoto, and he and Saigo will look at each other with total confusion. Saigo will not see anything familiar in the text of the agreement, and most importantly, he will not see the promised troops. And Tosa representative will be no less genuinely surprised that Satsuma and Shoshu are planning an armed government takeover. Thus, Satsuma and Tosa in an instant turned from allies to rivals. They had the same direction, but the ultimate goal and the means to achieve it were radically different. Leaving Tosa to do as it so fit, Saigo and his companions began writing letters to the allied aristocrats. On the 3rd of November, they sent a message that requested permission to punish the crimes of the shogunate, drive out the wicked schemers, and undertake the great mission of restoring the imperial house to its former state. Six days later, they received their answer. A secret order to destroy the traitor Keiki. This order was issued in the name of the emperor, though it was in fact a forgery, but Satsuma either didn't know about it or was very good at pretending not to know, and so, having obtained a basis for its actions, it began a full-scale preparations for war. Keiki, however, was again one step ahead. He must have had a nose for trouble, because I have literally no other explanation for his luck. Looking far ahead, he will outlive most of the people involved in the events described and will happily leave his retirement, taking pictures of flowers. So, Keiki once again sends the trouble and on the same day that Saigo received an imperial decree to eliminate him, decided to take advantage of Tosa's offer to surrender his powers to the emperor. On the 8th of November, he gathered all the daimyo present in Kyoto, at Niju Castle, and announced his decision to them. Saigo no Kubo, once again, realized that any attempt to solve the problem called Keiki peacefully would end in Keiki's victory, and accelerated preparations for war. Among other things, Saigo ordered a group of samurai from Satsuma in Edo to gather Ronin, aka masterless samurai, and wreak havoc in the city, setting fire to shogunal properties, looting warehouses, and picking fights with the police. Of course, this ugly episode is not mentioned in the myth of a great Saigo. And while Edo was experiencing these controlled riots, Saigo, along with Okubo and a few other key people, left Kyoto for Shoshu and then Kagoshima to finalize military plans on the spot. By winter, all preparations were completed, and on the 8th of December 1867, Saigo and Daimyo Shimatsu Tadayoshi set out from Kagoshima for Kyoto with a 3,000 man army. In Kyoto, they are reunited with the troops already in the capital, and in Osaka, the troops of Choshu were waiting, not daring, to enter the capital. Backed by physical strength, now Satsuma could press the imperial court to order the elimination of Keiki, 
and, by contrast, the reinstallment of displaced loyalist noblemen. And for once, everything went according to plan. The imperial court officially pardoned the daimyo of Choshu, reinstated the noblemen in their positions, and began to discuss the question of abolishing the shogunate. When the imperial regent went home to sleep after a long night of debates, one of the reinstated aristocrats, Iwakura Tomomi, sprang into action. That same day, he assembled at the palace the daimyo, and before them the young emperor Mutsuhito announced a great edict to change the political structure of Japan. Thus, on the 3rd of January 1868, the emperor abolished the shogunate, and at the same time, the position of imperial regent, which had existed since the 7th century. In place of the traditional system, there was now a president, personified by Prince Arisugawa no Miya, senators, namely daimyo and noblemen, and advisors, made of low-ranking noblemen and samurai. Fulfilling Saigo Nakubo's dreams, the sudden and swift bloodless coup was accomplished. Years of attempts and months of preparations were over. During the announcement of the decree, however, the masterminds tried to look as if they knew nothing about the emperor's decision. Kubo, during the announcement of the decree, was sitting quietly in the back rows, and Saigo was outside, commanding the troops guarding the palace. In truth, Saigo and Okubo, Ryoma, Kido, and other loyalist samurai had much more to do with these events than the daimyo sitting in the front rows. By the time the imperial edict was announced, ambitious samurai from the lower ranks were in fact deciding the politics of the major thousand clans, leaving the daimyos who had entrusted them with control in the backdrop of history. Of course, Keiki was immediately informed of the imperial decree, and along with the title of shogun, he was asked to surrender all his other titles and estates. Keiki, in turn, asked for a short delay to appease his disgruntled subordinates. Then, two days later, he abruptly left for Osaka, taking with him supporters from the Aizu and Kuwana clans, and didn't return. By the end of the month, Saigo was getting nervous. Such a calm was a clear sign that Keiki was gathering forces to attack. On the other hand, wasn't that what Saigo wanted, because he had never been able to defeat Keiki in politics. Take, for example, the riots in Edo ordered by Saigo, which by the end of January had borne fruit. The Bakufu got tired of tolerating attacks and arsons and attacked the Satsuma residents in Edo. A war has started. Two days later, news of the events in Edo reached Keiki, who is sitting still in Osaka. And the freshly dismissed shogun has no choice but to join the battle to preserve his honor. On the 25th of January, Keiki presents to the court his version of events. Shimazu Hisamitsu is a traitor who is manipulating the young emperor and acting against his wishes and the Satsuma clan is spreading unrest in Edo. He, Keiki, has no intention of tolerating this, so he will take matters into his own hands and punish the traitors. The Tokugawa and their allies began pulling troops toward Kyoto. The front line was formed south of the city, in the village of Toba and the town of Fushimi. The new government had about half as many troops, so they were preparing the worst-case scenario, when they would have to stage a diversion and take the emperor from Kyoto to Hiroshima. Saigo takes an active part in planning the military strategy and escape plan for the emperor, and on the evening of January the 27th, he leaves for the front line, where Satsuma's cannons have already begun shelling Tokugawa positions. As a high-ranking commander, Saigo was not supposed to personally participate in the battle, but he couldn't resist at least going to see it. Today, when I got news of the battle, I could not contain myself, and although I expect to be scolded by our lord, 
and went out to Fushimi and I have just now returned. He writes in a letter to Okubo. He would also add that it wouldn't hurt to send silk war banners to raise morale at the battlefront. Two days later, Saigo will be seen at the front once again, fighting alongside his relatives. And in one more day, Keiki would abandon his troops and sail from Osaka to Edo. When the three-day battle of Toba Fushimi ended with highly symbolic victory of the new government's troops under the imperial banners, Saiko begins to write letters. The enthusiastic stories about how the imperial forces had defeated the mighty Bakufu army five, no, ten times greater in number, well, in fact, about two or three times, were, however, soon replaced by disappointed lamentations that Saiko himself had become old and was no longer fit for battle. So, as soon as everything was settled, he would retire. But we've heard that before. It wasn't long before Saigo, preparing the imperial army for the march on Edo, was arguing heatedly that Keiki should commit Harakiri. Then, about a month later, he would again complain that he was stuck at his office job and asked to be transferred somewhere where he'd die in battle. Meanwhile, by the end of March, the Imperial Army, without much resistance, came very close to Edo and stopped in Sunpu, now Shizuoka, to prepare conditions on which the Tokugawa troops could surrender. On the side of the shogunate, the same issues were handled by Katsukaisho, to whom Keiki entrusted the management of all the troops. On 29th of March, Katsu sent to Saigo his negotiator with a letter that very specifically appealed to Saigo's much-valued sense of loyalty to the emperor. The current situation in the imperial land is different from the past in that, although brother is pitted against brother, they also know that it's time to avoid such disgrace. To exhaust one's strength suppressing lowly vassals is not a worthy past, but merely a decision to die a fruitless, angry death under a hail of bullets. And just as during their first meeting, Katsu convinced Saigo, who accepted to meet in person. The thieves and the 6th of April, Saigo spent in discussions with Katsu, and Katsu convinced him a third time, this time that Keiki is also a loyal servant of the emperor and a good governor who doesn't want the pointless death of his subjects. And if Saigo now showed mercy, the people of the country and foreigners alike would see it, and all would admire the imperial court, and peace and prosperity would come to the country. No longer wanting Keiki's blood, Saigo set out to arrange a new, more lenient plan for Tokugawa's surrender, all hints at which he himself had just recently criticized. Finally, on the 26th of April, the final terms of the surrender were announced at Edo Castle. Keiki was to retire to Mito province. Edo Castle was to be placed under the control of one of the daimyo allied to the emperor. And the shogunate and its allies were obliged to hand over all of their armaments to the imperial army. But all that was good in theory. In practice, many of the shogunate supporters had no intentions of surrendering. Thus, most of the promised weapons disappeared without a trace, and so did the soldiers. By the beginning of May, small gangs of Tokugawa samurai began to attack the imperial army, and even Katsu was unable to control the outraged. Many supporters of the shogunate still wanted to punish the traitors. Slowly, the city of Edo, which had surrendered without a fight and destruction, also fell into chaos. The same troops that only a little earlier guarded the peace of the city now gathered in Ueno to mock the imperial army and by the end of May began to attack the imperial patrols themselves. Understandably, the new government could not tolerate this for long, partly because Edo was chosen as a site of a new imperial capital and by the time of the emperor's move, no shogunate troops were to remain in the city. On the 4th of July, 
The troops of the new government attack the rebels and completely defeat them by evening. Sazuma's troops will suffer serious losses at the battle, and Saigo will once again have a chance to distinguish himself for his bravery. Then, Saigo will go to Kagoshima to prepare troops for an offensive against the northern provinces that oppose the new order. But then, his health will once again fail him. By the time Saigo recovers to the hot springs, gathers reinforcements and sails to the northern port of Kashiwazaki in present-day Niigata prefecture, the campaign against the northern clans has already turned in favor of the imperial army and will soon be over. Saigo will not be able to shine in battle, but it would be especially hard because his younger brother Kikujiro would be seriously wounded shortly before Saigo's arrival and would die of complications a week later. And Saigo believed that as the older brother, he should be the first to die too. Nevertheless, Saigo would leave the Norse as a hero. A hero even in the eyes of the enemies, who showed mercy to the defeated. In October, the northern campaign will be over, and Saigo will first go to Edo, which by then had become Tokyo, and then to Kagoshima, where he will immediately head to the healing hot springs. And that's where we'll leave him today. If in the first episode I was able to recount the first 35 years of Saigo's life, this one could barely fit five. Five of the most turbulent years that dramatically changed the history of Japan. In those five years, Saigo was finally able to accomplish everything his hero Shimazu Nariakira had dreamed of. He became one of the men who built the new Japan. Or rather, he destroyed the old one. How Saigo lived in the new Japan built by his comrades and what goals he pursued for the last 10 years of his life is something we'll talk about next time. Talk to you soon. Bye!